So as you flip to Matthew chapter 16, would you pray with me and ask God for his help? God, thank you for this church. I thank you for the hospitality in these people. We ask now that you would bless our time together. Help me to speak and that it would be clear. Get me out of the equation here. I want you to speak to these people. Help us to hear and understand your word. We know that only you can do this through the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So Matthew chapter 16, we're going to read from verse 13 through verse 18. Now, when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So I want to start our time together by asking a couple of questions that um, Jesus seems to think are important. Here they are. One, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And what is the church? Who is Jesus? What is the church? So number one, who is Jesus? Really, who is Jesus? Who do you say Jesus is? How would you answer this question? Be honest. And number two, what is the church? What is the answer that pops in your head when you hear the term church? What are the components of it? How does it function? Why does it exist? Does it exist to serve you? Is it a building? This one might sting. Is it a place to feel fed? Is it just something that meets your needs? What is the church? you're in this room and you wouldn't call yourself a believer, I'm really glad you're here because you may be more honest than the rest of us. But at the same time, I want to invite you to believe what Jesus says about who he is and what the church is. But at the very least, be a fly on the wall for this conversation between us and what the Bible seems to teach about the church because I encourage you, next time you talk to somebody who would call themselves a believer, ask them these questions. Who's Jesus? What's the church? Please ask them these questions. See, we live in a consumer culture, which means that everything that we do has one question behind it, and that's, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? Yeah, I'll do that thing, but what's in it for me? It's so ingrained in us that we might not even know that we're doing it. So the church has been overwhelmingly become a place where people go on a Sunday, consume the teaching, consume the community, consume the music, consume the culture of the church, and then disappear to their normal lives Monday through Saturday like the rest of the world. 
This isn't what Jesus said he would build. So, who is Jesus? What is the church? Pin those thoughts. Think about those as we unpack what Jesus seems to talk about in this text. I want to give you a little bit of context. So we're in the book of Matthew. Matthew was a tax collector who is now a disciple of Jesus. And he wrote this book mainly to show the fulfillment of the Old Testament, Testament that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. In this particular passage, this is right before Jesus starts to tell his disciples of his journey to the cross. And Jesus is talking to his disciples. They're in the district of Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was a place formerly known as Paneus. And Paneus was named that after the pagan god of nature, Pan. Nature, fertility, one of the two. And Caesar also lived in Caesarea Philippi. This was a place of many gods, kingdoms, idols that people came to worship for centuries. So the fact that this conversation is happening in this place already shows us a couple things about who Jesus is, right? Jesus' kingdom is greater than Caesar's. And Jesus is superior to any other gods or idols that we have. Jesus' kingdom is greater than Caesar's. And Jesus is more, far superior to any other gods or idols that we have. So we see Jesus bring his disciples to this place, and he asks them a question in verse 13. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? They answer him, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Now, these guesses don't seem like bad guesses. Prophets are great. John the Baptist was the greatest man that ever lived, according to Jesus himself. These are terrifyingly bad guesses. You can't take Jesus and put him up there with everybody else. You can't look at a book shelf full of books of all these prophets and teachers, you name it, and stick Jesus up there with them. You can't. He doesn't fit into their categories. He's the Son of God. And these people clearly don't see that. So then he asked them another question. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, without hesitation, as always, answers with a pretty profound answer. Let's give Jesus some credit here. Or, I mean, Peter some credit here. Jesus too. Peter some credit here. He says, you are the Christ, son of the living God. So back to one of the thoughts I had you pin. Who is Jesus? Who do you say Jesus is? How we answer this question matters. Let me help you out. So my teachers always gave me multiple choice, and every time they did, I loved them. So I will do that for you. Logically, there's only a few ways we can answer this question. C.S. Lewis and other scholars talk about this, and it's called the trilemma. Jesus could be one of three things. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord. So, option number one, he's a liar. He's intentionally deceiving people, whether it be for money, fame, wealth, power, 
you name it, he is telling people the wrong thing to gain something for himself. That's the first option. He's a liar. Option number two, he's a lunatic. He's self-deceived. He's crazy talking about all this stuff about being mediator between man and God. That he can forgive sins. Let me try to illustrate this. So, Sioux Falls has a fantastic park system, mostly in the summer, though. Um, in the winter, too. There's a, you can go sliding. One of my favorites is McKinnon Park. It's fantastic. I recommend that you go there. But if you went there, and there was a guy standing on a bench or a picnic table and screaming these things, I'm Lord. I am mediator between man and God. What would you think of him? Or her? Lunatic. Insane. That's the second option. And the last logical option that we have here is that he is exactly who he says he is. He's Lord. Lord of all, the Savior, God in the flesh. So liar? Well, even a liar would give in eventually, right? After being betrayed, arrested, beaten, mocked, spat on, forced to carry a cross up a hill and die on it, even a liar would say, stop! I'm joking! Please. How many people do you know that would take a lie that they've claimed to the grave? And if they do, I would argue that they've convinced themselves of that lie themselves and would fall into the next category. Lunatic. Here's a couple of problems with, the, with that option. Lunatic. One, Jesus rose from the dead. And two, if you need more than that, I'd love to share. Some of the best scholars in the world that have ever walked this earth say that we have nothing like we have in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, starting with the Beatitudes all the way through the Sermon of the, on the Mount. It cannot be made up. It cannot be contradicted. So lunatic? I don't think so. But Lord. Lord. Savior of the world. The only one. I love when technology works. So here's what I think we see here. What we say about who Jesus is determines everything in our life and in our eternity. Every, what we say about Jesus will determine everything in your life right now and your loyalties after this life. Lordship will determine your community and your loyalties. Who or what you see as Lord will determine who you let into your life. Which means that whoever you let into the deepest, darkest fears and areas of your life will determine who or what you see as Lord. So ask yourself, who do you allow to have influence in your life? Who do you allow to have influence in your life? 
And as you think about those people, who or what do those people reveal about the Lord of your life? What if you ask them to answer that about you? So Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It would be a lot easier and less provocative to be a biblical Christian if this wasn't true, right? Jesus is the only Savior. Like, I don't get to pick who's the Savior of the rest of my life, just he's the only one. If we're, caref- if we're not careful, we will live as if he's just a Savior. We'll functionally say things like, yeah, 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 that's cool, Jesus is the Savior, except when it comes to, I don't know, my marriage, my finances, my job, where I live, who I come into contact with. We will live as if Jesus is just a Savior and not the Savior. I want to warn you, this isn't what the Bible says about Jesus. And we live in a culture that accepts this, and it actually encourages this. It teaches us that reality is whatever you want it to be. If you want to be a princess, go for it. Or a ninja. But the Bible says different. The Bible says Jesus is who he says he is, whether we like it or not. He is Lord, and it will be determined by our communities and our loyalties. And that's why Jesus' question here is so profound. He did not ask, who am I to you? How do I conveniently fit into your agenda this week? No. What does he say? Who do you say that I am? And you've seen what this looks like, right? How many times have you seen a relationship fall apart? Whether it be a marriage, friendship, How many times have you seen it fall apart because of this? People are disappointed in relationships all the time because they put their hope in what they want the other person to be rather than who Jesus has created them to be in the first place. And we're going to treat Jesus like this if we're not careful. So Peter's answering, answering here, his answer is really encouraging. You are the Christ, son of the living God. Well, how the heck did Peter come up with that? I'm really glad that you asked. Let's keep going. So Peter says this about Jesus, and Jesus answers him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. Here's what I think we see here. Jesus wants us to be fully convinced of who he is. He does not need our affirmation. Jesus wants us to be fully convinced of who he actually is. He does not need your effort to convince yourself or him that you believe. Well, how does Peter know that Jesus is the Messiah? Well, God revealed it to him. God is doing this in you and in me, and we can't take credit for it. The way we talk about this on a regular basis is somebody stands up here every week and preaches for 40, okay, maybe 55 minutes. There hasn't been a chair or tomato thrown on this stage. 
They're talking about Jesus up here. This is evidence of the Spirit working in you and in me. Here's how Romans 8 describes the flesh. Jesus says, you didn't think of this on your own. The flesh did not reveal this to you. And here's what Romans 8 says about the flesh. You can flip there with me or just listen as I read it to you. Beginning in verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. He became flesh in order to destroy sin. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, while not according to the flesh, but what? According to the Spirit. Our flesh, apart from Christ, is against the Spirit. And therefore against anything that glorifies God. Thank God he's at work in us. So, this is freeing, isn't it? I mean, if if you would call yourself a Christian, this is freeing to us. My Father, Jesus says, will draw whoever he wants to me. Be freed of trying so hard to convince yourself that you know me. The fact that you're even saying that I'm your Lord is evidence of the Spirit working in you. Enjoy it as a gift. You might be here today and you think you need to convince Jesus currently that you love and know and honor him for who he is and you follow him. You say things like, I've been doing all these things, Jesus. Jesus says, stop trying to do. Start realizing what's already done. Did you know that you could pick up a Bible, maybe the one that, I, that somebody handed you today, read it front to back, cover to cover, do everything in it perfectly, never make a mistake, and still stand before God one day and be condemned to hell? Let me say that again. You could be perfect from now on. You could live the rest of your life with a permanent WWJD mindset and still be condemned to hell. So when I was 15, I got my driver's license. I had to wait a year because my brother didn't want one and he was older. Anyway, I'm still bitter. My first car was a 1998 Ford Contour. It was the fastest thing that I've ever owned. It's my first car. So I'm driving one day, and I pull up to a stoplight, and this guy comes up next to me. I don't know what kind of car. I don't remember what kind of car he driven. Probably way faster than mine, but I wanted to race. Light turns green. I floor it. This guy does not floor it. <laughs> you ever done this? Like, you feel like a... Never mind. Maybe it's just, maybe it's just me. <laughs> Needless to say, there was a cop. He pulled me over, and I got a ticket. I don't think, I mean, uh, this was the less sanctified version of me, so I don't think I deserved this ticket. Don't know why. I couldn't even argue or try to argue my way out of it. I was clearly already guilty. But what if the cop comes, asks for my license, registration, proof of insurance, and I give it to him, and he's like, okay, I'll be right back. And I'm like, no, 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 stop. Don't write me a ticket. Don't do it. 
I promise I'll never do it again. Can you imagine the look on his face? It doesn't work. It does not work this way. You're already, you've already committed the crime. You're already guilty. Now, multiply that tiny analogy by the infinite majesty of God himself, and you begin to scratch the surface of what it's like when we try to convince Jesus that we're going to do our best from now on. That might sound discouraging. Hold on, hang in there, that's not the end of the story. It's only because of Jesus that we can actually see this as really good news. So if you're sitting in this room and you wouldn't call yourself a believer, or if you're sitting in this room and you, wouldn't, you would have called yourself a believer for many years, but have just tried to earn this gift that God's given you freely in Jesus, I would love to invite you to believe the gospel here. That God looked at you and he looked at me before we can get our act together before we could figure it out, while we were still his enemy, and he sent Jesus. Not to look down upon us. He sent Jesus to live the perfect life, not to look down upon us, but to come to serve and die for us. And we took his last breath and said, it is finished. Three days later, rose from the dead. Now God looks at you and he looks at me and sees righteousness. The word we use is, his righteousness was imputed to us. Our bank account for righteousness is full because of Jesus. And it's not because of anything you or I do or did or will do, but everything because of what he did. And it's a gift. So we're wrapping up the Christmas season. We've been around gifts for the last few days, few weeks, whether you're giving them, receiving them, or like me, procrastinating to buy them. Did any of you at any point open a gift and then proceed to ask that person, yo, how much I got to pay for this? Did you, did you ask that? Like, you laugh, but Jesus is offering the eternal gift of life. The eternal life gift from Jesus. And guess what it stops being when we say, hey man, can I pay for that? How, how do I have to earn that? It stops being a gift. It's a gift of grace, and this is why this is such good news to us. So Jesus doesn't need your affirmation. He doesn't need you to earn the free gift that he offers. He wants you to be fully convinced and committed of who he is by the grace of God who has showed you to him. That's what he's about. And we can't do this without his help. But don't let that discourage you because the flesh is telling you that you can't come before the Lord. But because of what Jesus did, you can And we can, together, go to the Lord. We're in the middle of the Gospel of Matthew. These guys have been around Matthew for a while now. And they still didn't quite get it. What's Matthew trying to tell us by that? We need the Spirit to do this. We need our eyes opened. Open to what, you might ask? Well, the disciples knew what Jesus had been doing. 
So knowledge of him wasn't what he wanted. He wanted the great spirit-led confession that Jesus is who he says he is. Jesus being Lord and Savior by his perfect righteous sacrifice is that confession, and we stand here 2,000 years later and worship him for it. Our church strives. I love our church. I could talk about our church for a while. I only have one paragraph, I promise. Our church strives to be centered around this good news. If you've been in a gospel community in our church, you're growing in this. We're constantly growing in what we call gospel fluency, and we always want to remind each other of what Christ has already done because it holds a lot more eternal weight than the five things you can do to have a better week this week. We always remind each other, look what Jesus has done. Look, I know, I know that's going on. I know that you are in debt. I know that your marriage is falling apart. Look at what Jesus has done. So our, our church strives to be around this. We want to continue building this culture in our church. So I don't, that's it. That's all I got about our church. I could go on forever, but we don't have that long. So let's keep moving because Jesus says something about his church here that's a lot cooler than what I have to say about the church. So Peter says this profound truth about who Jesus is. Jesus tells him where it came from. And then he says, you are the Peter, you are Peter, excuse me, getting ahead of myself. You are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. Here's what I think we see here. The church is built on the spirit-led confession of who Jesus is. The church, not this building, these people gathered around this good news that Jesus will build is built on this great confession. It's built on Jesus. So I got to teach myself a little bit of Greek, um, which I think is really important here, and I'd love to share it with you. The name Peter, thank you, whoever brought this. One second. Selah. Love when Jonathan does that. So the word Peter from the Greek comes from the Greek word Petros. Petros just means small rock. And then he says, and on this rock. This time when he uses the word rock, he's talking about something different. It's the Greek word Petro, Petra. So Peter, Petros, rock, Petra. So it would read, you are Petros, and on this Petra, I will build my church. Well, why is that important? Jesus is saying, Jesus is not saying, that Peter is that which the church stands on. It can't be. He just told Peter he's fleshy. Peter's not strong enough to hold up the church. Jesus is saying that Petra here is the great confession that Peter just proclaimed about who Jesus is. Jesus is the Petra. 1 Corinthians 13, 11 puts it this way, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. This means that we don't have to put this kind of pressure on our pastor. Jesus says that he will build his church. This frees us to love, support, honor, and work with our pastor as opposed to thinking he's just going to do it all. 
the way we talk about this all the time, is until there's a bring your pastor to work day, guess who Jesus put there to grow his kingdom and tell, have them tell the people in the workplace about him? You and me. Jonathan cannot get to your workplace most of the time. So I imagine Peter had to be fascinated by rocks at this point, like walking down the beach. What time? Jesus told me. Is it a coincidence, though, that in his first letter, what does Peter describe the church as? You yourselves are like living stones built up into a spiritual house. I love that. Jesus did not forget this moment with Jesus. This changed Peter. So, here's what we see. The church is not somewhere where we just go make friends, where you and your friends can hang out. The church is not somewhere where we go to just hear a motivational speech about how to make your week better, or your marriage better, or your job better. The church does not exist to keep us in line. The church is the assembly of believers with a common great confession that Jesus is who he says he is. Son of the living God, the Christ. And then Jesus says, I will build my church. Simply, simply put, I will build my church. He didn't say, guys, I need you to do fill in the blank in order for me to build my church. This one stings a little bit for me. He did not say, guys, I need your money in order for me to build my church. This one might resonate with some of you. He did not say, guys, I need you to be educated enough to share the gospel in order for me to build my church. No. Simply, I will build my church. And then he says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So they're in Caesarea Philippi and they're standing what's called the gates of Hades. It's a big rock wall with a cave. One of my, uh, it's on my bucket list. I'd love to go there. But there's a bunch of tiny idols and kingdoms and um, gods carved into the walls of this cave and all around it. This is where people went for centuries to worship these gods at Caesarea Philippi. The Romans called this the Rock of Gods. Jesus calls it the Gates of Hell. So I love that he's having this conversation with his disciples at this place. Why would he have that? Why would he have this conversation at this place where all these idols and gods and kingdoms have been come to be worshipped for centuries? I think it's this. One day, when all these idols, kingdoms, you name it, are gone, when they're just a footnote in a dusty history book, there's going to be one thing left standing, and that's the church. Here we are, 2,000 years later. So far, he's right. But what is Jesus saying when he says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church? There's a couple of things that could be happening here. When you read this, there's a sense in which 
Jesus is saying that the gates of hell are trying to swallow and consume everything, including the church. Maybe, right? Ephesians 6.11 tells us, put on the whole armor of God that we will stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Defend. 1 Peter 5.9, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Philippians 1.27, only let your manner be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, faith of the gospel. First Corinthians 16:13, be watchful, stand firm, act like men, be strong. Philippians 4:1, therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm. Thus in the Lord, my beloved. So in one sense, yes, we're to stand firm, defend against the schemes of the enemy. Are we on the offense? Yes. See, the gate is not an attack weapon. The gate's a defense mechanism. When he says the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church, this means we're always on the fight, in the fight against death and darkness. In this case, we'd be on the attack, right? Hell's defense will not prevail as the gospel goes out to the world, brings souls to life from the dead. So why does the church exist? One, to hold fast to Christ because the enemy has free reign in this world. Two, To share the light of the gospel into the darkness of this world. So to hold fast to Christ, stand firm in the faith because the enemy has free reign in this world. Until Jesus comes back, the enemy has free reign in this world. But also to share the light of the gospel into this world, to the darkness of the world. We're in this fight. Jesus told his disciples that's what we're going to accomplish. So this is one of my favorite quotes when it comes to this. I'd love to share it with you. It's a guy by the name of C.T. Studd. Yeah. <laughs> Too long have we waited for one another to begin. The time of waiting has passed. The hour of God has struck. War is declared in God's holy name. Let us arise and build. God of heaven, he will fight for us as we for him. We will not build on the sand, but on the bedrock of the sayings of Christ. And the gates and minions of hell shall not prevail against us. Should such men as we fear, before the world, before the a, before the sleepy, lukewarm, faithless, namby-pampy, uh, I don't know, Christian world, will we dare to trust our God? We will venture our all for him. We will live and we will die for him. And we will do it with his joy unspeakable, singing aloud in our hearts. We will a thousand times sooner die trusting only in our God than trusting in man. And when we come to this position, the battle is already won. Jesus says this, the church will prevail. And the end of the glorious campaign in sight we will have the real holiness of God, one of daring 
faith and works of Jesus Christ. So, we don't need to get into a theological debate here about whether the church is on the attack or on the defense. What's important here is that there's clearly some friction between hell and the church, and Jesus says that the church will prevail. One thing will be left standing, and that's the church. Jesus has called you, and he's called me in this with him. And we don't have to wonder who wins. So when it comes to the mission of God that God's called us to, to be a part of, is the church on the defense against the enemy, or are we on the attack about, um, against the, with the gospel to the world? Yes. Yes, we are. My fear is that other things will get in the way of us actually believing this. In our current culture, almost everything falls into a few categories. Everything we do falls into, into the category of control, comfort, or approval. I would throw success in there with them. Everything we do will fall into one of these categories. So which is it for you? Maybe you're like me. You tend to worship the approval of people. We ask questions like, what if that person doesn't like me anymore after I share the gospel with them or talk about Jesus with them? Is it success? Do you secretly ask the question, what if I fail? Is it control? Maybe, maybe you would say, I will, I will do this as long as I can control the outcome. If I get to pick how this works, I'll do it. Which is it? Friend, I want to invite you with me to go to Jesus with these things. When we rebelled against the Father, he looked at you and he looked at me and he sent Jesus and our approval is based on what he's done, not what we do. Trust that he's in full control. When he was hanging on the cross and you and I thought it was most out of control, he rose from the dead to prove to us that all along he was in control. Go to Jesus with these things. This isn't easy. In fact, Jesus is proof that this fight will be extremely hard. If anybody knows that it's going to take blood, sweat, and tears, it's Jesus. But we know that the fight was, is, and continue to be hard, but it is won. Jesus says so. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The church. Well, that's a bold statement, Jesus. How do we know that that's true? Well, he just told us. He's going to be at the center of it. I will build my church. This is great. You guys know this. This is Matthew 28. It's the Great Commission. And he leaves his disciples with the same exact comforting phrase. He says, I will be with you. When? When will he be with us? Till the end of the age. Same comfort. I will be there. He's here for the church. He's at the center of it. He's at the center of our church. He builds it. He's the leader of the fight. He's at the center of the Great Commission. It's going to work. Stop worrying about all this stuff. Trust me. 
Jesus will be there. He was there then. He's here now, and he's going to be here forever. So here we are. We're going to wrap up the Christmas season. We're going to go into the new year. What's the first thing that we're going to see on social media on January 1st? New Year's resolutions. People will actually put on social media for the public a list of things that they have to do this year. Here's my prayer. As we go into the new year, my hope is that this would be true of us. That we would believe that Jesus is who he says he is. That the the truth of this would permeate in our hearts so much that it would overflow to anybody that we come in contact with. That's my prayer. So maybe your New Year's resolution looks less like getting into shape, saving money. I don't even know. I don't make... Those are the big two, right? Saving money, getting into shape. And it's going to look more like, I don't know, checking a box on the connection card that says baptism. Maybe it's going to be repenting and believing this gospel for the first time in your life. Maybe it's going to be actually reading the Bible to learn about Jesus more than what you already think you know. Would you join me in this? Jesus says that he will be with us. Hear Jesus' words about his church, us, here. I am your Lord. I will build you. I will sustain you. I will grow you up. There's nothing that you or I could do or add or subtract to add to this great comfort. When we believe this, when we believe this about who Jesus is, what does he say? It will propel us into hellgate-crushing mission with the gospel. And Jesus says, I built you for this. Now go, and I'll be with you. And that's why even though the battle is hard, it will be won. Let's pray. God, I thank you. Thank you that through Jesus and through his, through your word, we may know that we can rest in the fact that the battle is won. You have invited us into this victory. And there's nothing that we can add or subtract from that. I thank you for this church. I thank you for the words we get to hear from this stage on a regular basis. But God, we confess that you are the only one that can bring about life with these words. We ask that you would do that. Help us to see you for who you are and help us to know you for who you are as we enter the new year. Maybe for some of us for the first time ever. Maybe for some of us, like your disciples, just clearly for the first time ever. And as we begin the new year, it's tempting to think of all the things that we have to do. Will you help us remember all that you have done for us? And when we forget and we fail to acknowledge this, will you remind us by the power of your Holy Spirit? 
Thank you for the ways you're already working in and among us. As we wrap up the Christmas season, we're remembering your coming, that you are with us in this fight. And because you are with us, the fight in this fight, that we are more than conquerors. We stand in awe of this. We love you and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.